week this has been. And then we get to church and all of our readings today have to do with the end of the world. So is this mere coincidence or divine revelation? In truth, the Christian church in the West has long wondered about the end of time. For some of us, the topic has been a source of great fear and uneasiness. If you grew up in a church similar to the one in which I grew up, then you know what it means to have rapture anxiety, a term describing the distress that occurs when someone fears that they have been left behind. Growing up in the days before cell phones, I confess that whenever I was unable to reach my parents and siblings by phone, the possibility that the rapture had occurred, that Jesus had returned on earth and taken his followers back up into heaven, somehow leaving me behind by mistake, Well, that actually registered with me as a plausible explanation. Despite this perpetual mild case of rapture anxiety, my family and my church never did anything to physically prepare for the end of the world. But some groups have. There was the great disappointment of 1844, when William Miller, a Baptist living in upstate New York, used an interpretive technique on the Bible that allowed him to calculate when the second coming of Jesus would occur. Many of his followers, known as Millerites, sold their possessions and waited for the rapture. They waited for the very last days to really begin. When Jesus did not end up coming as a thief in the night, the group began to divide into different sects, one of which ultimately gave rise to the Seventh-day Adventists. And then there are the modern-day preppers. Approximately three million Americans are preppers. They are preparing for an apocalyptic event which will change the world as we know it. There are numerous websites where one can learn how to survive an apocalypse, what clothes to pack and how to pack them, what kind of foods to stock, what medications and personal hygiene items are crucial to have on hand, fire building supplies, and what is needed to protect oneself from others following an apocalyptic event. As one survival website urges, be prepared for aggressive behavior and don't be surprised when even your closest friend turns on you. Some might armor up and pack a handgun, rifle, and extra ammo. Others prefer their collection of knives. And there are those who want to take after the walking dead's Daryl Dixon with his impressive crossbow skills. It is ideal to test different weapons to establish which ones you are most comfortable with. You may also like to stock more than one type of weapon. Well, what we learn from these two groups is that not surprisingly, people tend to react to predictions of the end of time with our two most common reactions to fear. Fight or flight. The Millerites sold their possessions and withdrew from the culture. It was a kind of flight. Survivalists prepare to fight anything that reduces their own chances of survival. I think that Jesus understood these tendencies of human nature. In today's Gospel reading from Luke, Jesus is watching as people gaze in wonder at the grandeur of the temple, at its beauty at the huge stones standing one on top of the other. He tells those around him that the day is coming when all that they now see will be destroyed. When they ask when this will be and what signs they should look for, 
Jesus lists the events that throughout the Bible signify periods of cataclysmic change, things like wars, famines, plagues, and earthquakes. But for Jesus, the point is not so much about the things that will happen as it is about the way the disciples should respond. First, Jesus says, do not chase after false messiahs, those who come promising certainty and deliverance and a game plan, one that often meets destruction with even more destruction. Jesus knew that sometimes when that which we have taken to be sure and certain, the center of our culture and just the way things are, when that's been destroyed, we are tempted to grab on to some other kind of certainty, be it a false prophet, an idol, or a person with the best fight plan. Like preppers, we take our future into our own hands and we try to secure our own survival. Jesus tells the disciples not to fall for this. Second, the warning not to be led astray by others does not mean that the disciples are to sit and do nothing, withdrawing from active life and just waiting for the end to come. This is the complaint Paul levels at the Thessalonians in today's epistle reading. Evidently, the church in Thessalonica expected Jesus to return at any moment, and some had fallen into a life of idleness. Like the Millerites, they were just waiting for the end. The second letter to the Thessalonians was written to encourage members to continue living faithfully, fruitfully, with purpose. According to Jesus, this purpose is to bear witness. Even the persecutions and imprisonments that the disciples will undergo, they're all opportunities to bear witness to a wisdom much deeper than our own, a wisdom not of our own making, the wisdom of God made known to us in Jesus. This is a wisdom that values giving over receiving, loving over hating, unity over division, diversity over sameness. And finally, our gospel passage ends with Jesus choosing what to me seems like a strange way to reassure someone. He tells the disciples, You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, by relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your souls. In other words, Jesus tells them, To save your life, you have to be willing to lose it. It's the logic of resurrection. Out of the hardest and most destructive of times, out of even death itself, God can and does bring life. Perhaps this is a good thing to remember after this past week. St. Peter's is not a monolithic congregation. Some of us voted for Clinton. Some of us voted for Trump. But we have all experienced a country divided, a rage that consumes so many of our citizens, and an uncertainty that looms over us all. Is this the end of the world? Well, in a sense, yes. According to Ralph Waldo Emerson, we live our whole lives at the end of the world. He writes, one of the illusions of life is that the present hour is not the critical, decisive hour. No man has learned anything rightly until he knows that every day is doomsday. If we think of the end kind of as an edge, then I think he's right. 
Every moment we stand at this edge, every moment we stand on the brink of a new moment and we know not what it brings, every moment we stand at the edge of a map and the next step that we take is on unmapped terrain, we are always living at the edge of our knowing. Sometimes we live in blissful ignorance of this fact. Sometimes this reality is brought home to us by events in the world around us. The disciples experienced the edge of the world, the end of their knowing, during their time in Jerusalem. They knew it in the mounting hostility of those in power and in the crucifixion of Jesus. Having recently experienced the destruction of the temple by Roman armies, the first readers of the Gospel of Luke were also looking into a future they couldn't know. And now we do the same. No matter who we cast our vote for, we don't know for sure what the next few months and years will bring. And many of us are anxious. And perhaps we have cause to be anxious. So many movies and novels and even some images in our own book of Revelation portray the end times in these violent, polarized ways as a moral battle between good and evil, between us and them, as a triumph marked by rigid certainty in which the side deemed morally correct is in the end the only side remaining. Theologian Catherine Keller believes that this version of the apocalypse has seeped deeply into our Western way of thinking, and we have subconsciously developed an apocalyptic way of thinking. We have developed a polarized either-or morality that self-righteously seeks the destruction of the other side, albeit with the best of intentions. So maybe at this moment in time, this is the challenge. Can we stand at this edge of our knowing and not seek to destroy those who think differently from us, not seek the annihilation of our differences, but instead can we stand at this edge and still maintain relationship with one another across these differences? Can we conceive of a way that our division can be healed without the destruction of difference? I think Jesus shows us something about this way forward. First, whoever we voted for, we can avoid the temptation to immediately latch onto false messiahs onto idols of our own making, onto game plans that spell a path to victory. We don't become fighters like one of the three million Americans who are prepping for a survivalist world. We don't allow ourselves to become so ensconced in our own certainties and judgments and dualistic ways of thinking that we seek to destroy everyone in the world that we can't bring over to our side. Instead, we stand in the midst of division, with the ear of our heart open and ready to hear. We engage in conversations with those who hold views different from our own. After all, Jesus never asked someone to believe in him or to subscribe to his way of understanding before he sat down and ate with them. Second, we also don't throw up our hands and say, God is in control, it will all work out in God's good time. God is at work in the world, and that we can trust. God is always at work in the world, opening up pathways to move forward, offering new possibilities where we thought there were only closed endings, bringing light into darkness, turning death into life. But here's the thing. God chooses to do this work through us 
And I believe God chooses to do this work through those of other faiths too. God works through each and every one of us every time we bear witness to another way of being in the world, each and every time we stand with the stranger among us, our LGBTQ brothers and sisters, the disabled, the poor and the hungry and the homeless, the women in our nation who experience sexual assault and receive low wages at disproportionate rates, those of other faiths and other skin colors, and those in the Rust Belt of America, who feel their voices have been unheard and their despair unanswered. Yes, this is, in a sense, the end of the world. Yes, we do stand at the edge of our existence, the edge of our knowing, waiting for what will be revealed. But we don't wait as the Millerites did for that next world to arrive as some gift that comes down from the sky. Instead, we have to help usher in the next world co-creating with God the very future for which we wait. So go ahead and take some time to recover from this week. Get plenty of rest, but don't like the Thessalonians fall into idleness. As always, there is much, much work to be done.